Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, fellow time travelers. Big thanks to everyone who's already signed up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Uh, it's great to have your support and to see your comments on my videos each week. For those of you who haven't seen it, the site's packed full of history and it's really driven by a desire to contemplate how history connects with the modern world. It features a new video every week, uh, there's competitions, a whole archive of great videos to catch up on if you're newly joined. I do it all from here in uh, my home in Stirling. Uh, occasionally you might see one of my wolfhounds strolling around in the background looking like hairy ponies. Uh, but most importantly, the site helps support the making of this podcast, which is my love letter to the British Isles. To sign up, simply go to patreon.com and search for Neil Oliver. Right, time to settle down as we head to the coast for the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. Thousands were put to the sword. And they say that the River Tweed ran red with the blood of the slaughtered. In this episode, we stride around the Elizabethan battlements of a town held ready for war. Centuries of history flow through it on the beguilingly beautiful River Tweed. Celtic Britons came here long before the modern nation-states of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland were even thought of. It became part of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of Northumbria and latterly it's been fought over by England and Scotland in a deadly tug-of-war lasting hundreds of years. It's a town with an atmosphere all of its own where the people's loyalties are first and foremost to the locality rather than to any nation. It's very much a place apart. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles.
Hi Neil. In the last episode, we entered the Rutherford building and came face to face with the science superhero who split the atom. Where are we this week? It's a bit of a jump this week, Paul. Uh, from the vast complexity of a single tiny wee atom to a whole town packed to bursting with thousands of years of rich history. We're in a place that sharply reminds us, certainly reminds me, that on these isles, it's more often than not the case that the local rather than the national identities have the deepest roots. We're on the Northumberland coast in the beautiful town of Berwick-upon-Tweed. Morning, Paul. Um, We're in Berwick-upon-Tweed in the absolutely outstandingly beautiful county of Northumberland I mean you know we're up at number 80 or something in the in the love letter now in terms of locations and I feel so strongly about so many parts of the archipelago but I'll quite happily confess that I have a special place in my heart for Northumberland I just think it's stunning at the moment especially I travel up and down on the on the train the the east coast main line from Edinburgh to London and we hug the coast for a bit, and we, so we come down sort of like Dunbar way, and then, and then we come past uh, Lindisfarne, Bambra, and it's just, well, what can what can I say? It just touches me, and I love it. And Berwick upon Tweed, of course, is one of the stops on that rail service. Uh, on the approach to it, 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 it's easy when you look at Berwick upon Tweed. It's easy to let the centuries drift away. The track, the, the railway is far enough away from it that if you sort of half half squint your eyes, you can see a medieval town. It's magical. It's so beautiful, and invariably on the east coast, you know, the sun is shining, so the river, the Tweed, is silver. This silver ribbon going out into the sea, and there's beautiful, elegant bridges, three of them that span the the Tweed, and red roofs on the houses. Oh, it's a gorgeous place. So, I mean, one way or another, it was always going to be in my top one hundred. I've had occasion to be in Berwick-upon-Tweed more times than I can count. I have filmed various bits and pieces of stories, told the story of atrocities and the rest that have unfolded in that little town over the centuries, and, well, I love it. And so it's an absolute 24-karat gold member of the 100 places that I love so well. I also love the fact that that's where the cloth tweed got its name from yes possibly by accident ah (laughs) yeah a London cloth merchant got a consignment of cloth from this part of the country and I guess in his mind's eye he connected it to the river Tweed so instead of Tweel he read Tweed and the name stuck that's isn't it isn't that lovely that's a lovely story a lovely detail you know, everyone knows about Tweed, but whether they whether they connect it or not with the river, I don't know. But obviously Tweed is a product that's known not just around Britain, but in every corner of the known world. You know, the ape creatures of the Indus know about Tweed. There's lots of places around the British archipelago that have, one way or another, managed to slightly go their own way. And they went their own way so long ago that everyone's forgotten that they're different. Except, of course, the people who live and are born and raised in those places, and they tend to know it and are proud of the strangeness or the oddness or the uniqueness. Obviously, the Channel Islands are described 
as a self-governing crown dependency because they have that independence from, well, from everywhere. You know, they run some of their own affairs. They make some of their own decisions and variations on laws apply. Although they come under the protection, you know, if anyone was to invade or whatever, or, or the place was in strife, you know, of course they're, they're as British as everywhere else, but they're slightly different. Likewise, the Isle of Man, and, you know, we've already done the Tinwald, that separate ancient parliament that some people reckon is the oldest of its kind anywhere on the planet. Again, makes some of its own rules. Uh, the Isle of Man has its own language, Manx. There's the Manx cat with its missing its tail because apparently it was the last animal to leap aboard Noah's Ark, just as the big doors were closing and it nipped its tail off, according to the legend. But they're just different. And likewise, but in its in its own unique way, Berwick-upon-Tweed is a place apart. And unlike, say, Man or the Channel Islands, it's part of the mainland. You'd think it would be much more under the, <laughs> under the norms of the rest of the island, but it has retained something a little bit different. And... I've I've long said, long maintained that while lots of people are, are very excited and passionate about nationalities, English, Irish, Scottish, Welsh, when you're on the ground, if you move around the outside the coastline of the country on foot, you don't notice when you cross from England into Scotland or England into Wales. But what you do get is as you move across the miles... You can sense changes in dialect, changes in house styles, changes in livelihoods and lifestyles. That's what you notice. You notice that people have identities that are much more local and on a smaller scale than the national scale. And you feel it when you go to somewhere, and it's not unique in this regard, but when you go to Berwick-upon-Tweed, if you spend any time there, you realise that it's not British or English or Scottish, it's Berwick. And a lot of people will tell you that they're Berwickers. So, I mean, obviously, it's, it's, it's England's most northerly town. It's English, it's in England. But it has a different sense of itself, which... It's just quietly maintained at the local level and it, it just makes the place fascinating. And obviously, as England's most northerly town, it's right cheek by jowl with the border, with Scotland. You get Scots who are living there or English people who are living there and they'll, they might claim that as their identity, Scottish or English. But you get just as many people that will say that they're Berwick first, borderers second, and really, Northumberland third, <laughs> British fourth. It's really funny. It's, it's just really good that their sense of themselves is, is connected to a much smaller geographical entity than a country. You love that, don't you? I do, I do, because it brings it home to me again and again. You, Britain's small, you know, in the, in the scheme of things, it's quite a small place. But it's broken up into this patchwork of even smaller places. It just fascinates me, the identities. And you get you get this reminder that once upon a time, the Long Island of Britain, and of course Ireland in its own way, they were places of tribes. First and foremost, they were the territories of tribes rubbing up against one another, sometimes happily, sometimes not, sometimes at war with one another, sometimes allied with one another. And the aftermath of that, the consequences of that long history are there. 
in those local identities. And I, I just think it's it's all part of what, what makes the, the fabric of Britain all the more fascinating. I mean, there's no getting away from the fact that Berwick's had a tortured history because of where it sits, because it's right there where Scotland merges with England, you know, that blurring. It's been pulled like a child between warring parents because it's a port. The tweed goes out into the sea there, so you've got, for shipping, for cargoes moving into and out of the country, it's a valuable place, money to be made. You know, you'd be taking attacks on things coming and going from Berwick. So both England and Scotland wanted it. It was useful. It was an important place to hold on to. So the various kings and queens kept on tugging away at it. So sometimes it was officially Scottish, sometimes it was officially English. But for all that, Berwick's so old that it predates Scotland and England. Before there was a, before there was a Scotland, before there was an England, the Berwick was there. Anglo-Saxons certainly had it as part of the Kingdom of Northumbria. The Anglo-Saxons were those that had come in as Rome's interest in and grasp on Britannia was weakening. You know, the Romans, they had to concentrate on things that were happening nearer to Rome and home, and they began to slide away, slip away from Britannia. The vacuum that they left, it pulled others into it, into the empty space, and the Anglo-Saxons came in. So the Kingdom of Northumbria was there. But even before that, even before the Anglo-Saxons and Northumbria, there were Britons, which is to say the tribes that were here, well, goodness knows, the ice melted at the end of the last ice age. The place was recolonised, repopulated, and by the time the Anglo-Saxons were coming in, there were Britons who were there before the Romans anyway and had become Romanized to some extent. But the point being, there was a settlement at what becomes Berwick long before there was a Scotland or an England or a Northumbria. There were people there. But thereafter, once Scotland and England were established, it became this place that was a focus of kings and powerful people. For a long time, it was a busy Scottish port with trade going east uh, into the Baltic Sea. In the 12th century, so that's in the 1100s, King David I uh, made it a borough. So for all that time, from the 1100s onwards, it has been the borough, a royal borough. So it's got that ancient heritage as well. By far and away, the ugliest thing that ever happened there, a true horror, was in 1296. And this is running up to the wars of Scottish independence. The king in Scotland was John Balliol. And he had, in 1296, ill-advisedly to say the least, he had invaded England in support of France. The king in England was Edward I, you know, famously known as Longshanks. He was a big tall man, six foot plus, a very impressive figure, a very determined warrior king. And he was busy at war with the French. And the, the French invoked the old alliance a treaty of mutual support between Scotland and France. The idea of it was that if, if France was getting a hard time from England, Scotland would weigh in. And likewise, in theory, if Scotland was getting a hard time from England, the French would weigh in on, on the Scots' side. But it, realistically, the old alliance tends to be something that some Scottish people remember fondly and that almost all French people have forgotten. <laughs> it's, it only cuts one way. I, th I think if you stopped 100 people in Paris and asked them about the old alliance... I, I don't think you'd get many responses. But in, in any event, John Balliol felt obliged under the terms of the alliance with France to 
attack to take England from behind, as it were, while Edward was was busy in France. And Edward went bonkers, <laughs> is, the, is, the, is the best way to describe it. He felt, because of his understanding of his history, and certainly the way that he liked to portray his history, he felt that the English were the original settlers of Britain and therefore had rights to the whole place. Now, Scotland would go on to challenge that point of view just as strenuously as Edward was pitching it from his. But nonetheless, Edward really felt that, quite frankly, Scotland might as well be part of his kingdom. He was was friendly enough with John Balliol, but he knew that John Balliol wasn't half the man that he was. John Balliol wasn't a confident warrior king like Edward, and John Balliol was made to regret tackling Edward. Edward tended to look on the northern kingdom of Scotland either as a troublesome little brother, at best, or sometimes he looked on her as a disobedient woman that he felt entitled to beat. Either way, he felt entitled to dominate his his northern neighbour. So he invaded Scotland and right away he took Berwick, because Berwick at that time was, was Scottish. And he basically had his army set about putting the whole place to death. Men, women and children. Maybe it's been a bit hyperbolic, maybe the stories have been exaggerated, but it's probably safe to say that thousands were put to the sword and they say that the River Tweed ran red with the blood of the slaughtered. And according to the the story, it took local churchmen going on their hands and knees, basically, to beg for the slaughter to halt. To say, are you really going to just genocidally wipe out the whole place? And so the killing was brought to an end, but obviously Berwick was now part of England. Berwick had been brought to heel, and Edward built walls. If you go to Berwick-upon-Tweed now, there are walls. It's, a, it's like a walled town. And the, the present walls were augmented and, and worked on in the Elizabethan period, but they follow lines laid down by Edward at that time, at the end of the 13th century. And so, from one day to the next, if you like, or one week to the next, that which had been Scottish was now English, and severely bloodied into the bargain but it didn't stop at that point um, after Edward died Edward obviously died still in the thick of fighting the Scots the Scots were protesting their independence you've got William Wallace then you've got Robert the Bruce making the case for Scottish independence but Edward dies Edward the First dies with that matter still hotly contested His son was Edward II, who wasn't, again, he wasn't half the man that his father was. He wasn't really cut out for warfare. He was more of a bookish sort. I think, I think in truth he was probably a, you know, quite a decent fellow, (laughs) but he wasn't, he wasn't cut out for war, not the way his father had been. Nonetheless, he gathered an army to continue his father's work of, of stamping on Scotland, if at all possible. So, because Berwick-upon-Tweed was England's most northerly point, it made sense to gather the the English army there in all its pomp before crossing the border into Scotland. And this, of course, was the advance to Bannockburn. This is the campaign that that culminated in Bannockburn. A deal had been struck. Robert the Bruce's brother, Edward, had been besieging Stirling Castle, which was the last English garrison in Scotland. Uh, Robert Bruce had been waging a very successful guerrilla war at that point. Edward was besieging Stirling, but he had struck a deal with the English that if they would bring an army to within a mile of Stirling Castle by midsummer, 
he would back off. And so Edward duly did. He actually met the terms that ought to have persuaded the Scots to, to go away. But of course they didn't. And Robert was waiting for them with a smaller but determined army. And Bannockburn 1314, <laughs> we, we all know the story, Scotland's greatest ever home win against the English team. And in the aftermath of the Bannockburn well, campaign, well, four years after, so by 1318, Berwick was Scottish again. OK, so after all that horror show in 1296, within a generation, it was back in Scottish hands. But then for the next century and a half, it just kept on getting pulled one way or the other. It's just like a, a tug of war. Sometimes it was Scottish, sometimes it was English. And by the time Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who was the future Richard III, the bad guy of Shakespeare, he captured Berwick for the last time, for the English, for England, in 1482. Okay, so from, from 1318 until 1482, it was getting pulled back and forth, but then in 1482, it became English once again. By that time, it had changed hands a dozen times. In that century and a half, you know, it had been pulled back and forth all these times. But then that's, that's only 1482. It wasn't until the 18th century, the 1700s, that Berwick upon Tweed was formally and unequivocally made part of England. All the relevant forms were filled in and boxes ticked, you know, hands, hands shaken and so on. So it was only in the 1700s that Berwick formally became English again. And still, and still, despite that, it still keeps cropping up in official paperwork, government paperwork, as an entity, international treaties and the like. It's really fascinating. In 1854, Britain went to war with Russia, the Crimean War, and Berwick was listed as a separate place. Queen Victoria, when she signed the paperwork declaring war on Russia, she, she signed off as the Queen of Britain, Ireland, Berwick upon Tweed and all British dominions. So Berwick is still sort of floating around as a place in its own right, even by the mid-19th century. And wonderfully, I mean, it's like something from a movie, really, but one way and another, when peace was then struck, when the war was over and all the paperwork was going back and forth between Britain and Russia, Berwick-upon-Tweed got left off. It wasn't in the treaty. And so, as far as some people were concerned, Berwick remained at war with Russia, with the Soviet <laughs> Union and the rest of it, all on its own. And it wasn't until 1976 that a Soviet envoy came to Berwick-upon-Tweed and paperwork was filled in, finally ending Berwick's Crimean War 120 years after the fact. It's so great. That is brilliant, isn't it? It's brilliant. But Berwick was, you know, you wonder if in the Kremlin, if there was talk of the fact that they were still at war with Berwick. Who knows? Um, I mean, the thing that happened in 1976, let's be clear, it was tongue in cheek. You know, there was, everyone knew it was a bit of fun, even as it was happening. But nonetheless, it just underlined the fact that Berwick is, was, and to some extent always will be Berwick. Just, it's just a, it's just a different place, and it's uh, as I said at the beginning, it's gorgeous. I could happily live in Berwick. You know, you kind of build a, you sort of compile a list of places in your head of places that you could live. Oh, I could live here. Well, for me, Berwick upon Tweed's absolutely one of those. I could go and live in that town 
in a New York minute. I love it. I love it because it's on the coast, it's got sea views, and it's on the river, and it just, it's, I love it. I love the place. It's all red sandstone buildings, and it's, it all looks old, and there's piggledy-piggledy elements of it, and there's um, the Elizabethan walls and battlements, as I say, that you can stand on and look out over these commanding views. And you get a real, you get a real feel. I mean, when you're on those battlements, it feels like a place that spent time on a war footing, heavily defended. You can get a real feel for it. There's these three lovely bridges, and you can stand and just watch the river flowing out to join the North Sea. And you feel it. You feel history in Berwick. There's a lot of places around the archipelago where you can sense the deep history, and you certainly feel it at Berwick upon Tweed. And you leave Berwick heading north and within a couple of miles you cross the border into Scotland but if you're in Berwick walking around the streets going into the shops and pubs and, and what have you and you listen to the accents you cannot avoid sensing that the place has its own identity its own atmosphere at some elemental level it's neither English nor Scottish and I always think when I'm in Berwick that the national identities though they matter a great deal to, to a lot of people, it's local identities, I think, that run deepest. And sometimes I think when J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, the hobbits are the British. For him, the qualities of the average, ordinary British man and woman were hobbitish. And, of course, the place that was dearest in the hearts of all hobbits was the Shire. And... When you're in a place like Berwick, you can see what he means. I'm sure there are other places. I mean, obviously, G.R.R. Tolkien, he took his inspiration from the Midlands around Birmingham, actually. That's where he grew up. But that sense of people that are closely rooted, whose main passion and interest is within the few square miles that they can see from their, their own front doors, and that that's where their hearts lie, and you get a fundamental sense of that in Berwick-upon-Tweed. The North Sea ahead and the moors behind. An Iron Age fort built on the cliffs. A draw for Vikings who settled here. An important 13th century port. Its defences were bolstered by Henry VIII. Courtesy of its curative mineral water and bracing sea air, it became hyper-fashionable in the 19th century as a spa. One of England's first seaside towns, in fact. A grand resort with a hotel to match, designed around the concept of time, with a bedroom for every day of the year it was the largest in Britain. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman.
And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.